The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. So let's now read from the book of Galatians, starting in chapter 3, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Please use me this morning to teach your church your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you're like me, whenever you think of adoption, you think of the heartwarming stories adoption brings. Now, I don't know that giddy is a word that I was used to describe myself very often, but I certainly get giddy when I see a picture or a video of a family consisting of adopted children. And it's because we normally think of these children as deserving, and there's nothing wrong with this. Children being made in the image of God deserve to have a mother and a father. But I ask you to consider something Russell Moore has said, himself an adoptive parent. He says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. As you meet with a social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? Now, this story doesn't quite fit the narrative that I described earlier. This isn't heartwarming. It's actually a bit scary. But consider that this 
is the spiritual adoption that our earthly adoptions are based on. Russell Moore actually goes on to identify this problematic 12-year-old. He's you and he's me. That is what the gospel tells us about our adoption, that God calls sinners to himself. Those you would never imagine God calling to himself, he calls. And this really brings to life the lyrics we just sung earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. In our text for today, Paul makes this truth abundantly clear. But since we're jumping into the middle of this book, I think it's only right that I give some short context. Paul's main aim in this book is to show our justification comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul writes the book of Galatians to speak against those who are trying to add to the gospel, saying that in order to be saved, we needed to follow the strict rules of the Jewish law. The Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Practically speaking, though, Galatians is overly familial. By my own count, Paul uses family-related language at least 23 times in just six chapters of text. In a total of nine times, Paul refers to the Galatians as his brothers and sisters. What's most interesting, though, is that seven of those nine references come after the text that we find ourselves in. A shift takes place in chapters 3 and 4. From chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says much of our justification by faith. But at the end of chapter 3, he gets practical. Our justification actually results in something. It changes our status. That is, our justification results in our adoption. So that's where we're going today. Paul shows us that we former slaves of sin are not only justified, but also adopted. I want you to find joy this morning in the fact that you as a believer are not just brought into God's kingdom, you are brought into God's family. And my end hope is that you would be motivated motivated by your own adoption to consider what it means to live in light of this. So just so you know where we're going, in our text, Paul reminds us of three glorious realities. First, apart from Christ, we were completely enslaved. Second, through Christ, we are freely justified. And third, in Christ, we are lovingly adopted. In our text this morning, Paul walks us through these three glorious realities two different times, once in Galatians 3 and once more in Galatians 4. So as we go through these realities, I'll show how Paul makes them clear in both chapter 3 and chapter 4. So first, apart from Christ, we were completely enslaved. Throughout the book of Galatians up to our text, Paul has aimed to make it clear that you and I are in dire need of God's grace. Grace that is only manifested through his son, Jesus Christ. And this grace that comes through Christ and Christ alone is why all men and women everywhere in this world need to put their faith in Christ. Our salvation and our redemption can only be by faith. And so apart from faith, we find that we are hopeless. And here, Paul expounds on why, showing us what may not seem like a glorious reality at first, but when we think about this, it actually is. Again, that glorious reality is that you, me, and every other person in this world is completely enslaved apart from Christ. Here are the words that define who we were before faith came or before the coming faith was revealed, Paul says. 
Until saving faith in Christ was made possible by the gospel, we were imprisoned and confined. As Paul shows us elsewhere, we were guarded. And what was doing the imprisoning and the confining? It was the law. From the start of our passage, Paul makes it clear that we were slaves. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this. He picks up this theme elsewhere, namely Romans 6, 17. He says that we used to be slaves of sin. What does this mean? Well, he tells us in Romans 6, 19, we used to offer parts of ourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness. You weren't just sinning, but your sin was becoming greater and greater. In Romans 6.21, Paul says that we produced fruit back then that we are now ashamed of. And had we not been saved by God, the outcome of that fruit would have been death. Paul really wants the Galatians to understand that apart from Christ and apart from faith in him, the best that we can do for ourselves is slavery, imprisonment. The law, as good as it is, only proves to us just how sinful and bound we are. The law binds us. It confines us. It puts us in chains. The imagery that comes to our minds might be one of being locked up in a prison yard. This is where the law has us. And you are not just a mere prisoner. You are locked up, guards watching at every corner, 40-pound fetter tied to your ankles, And there isn't just some picket fence around you. No, these prison walls are 20 feet tall, barbed wire with razor edges. And lest you think you can scale this wall, in the words of Forrest Gump to Lieutenant Dan, you ain't got no legs. (laughs) There is no hope for you to get out of this prison on your own because to get out of this prison, you have to follow the law to the T. But you and I cannot do this. Not being able to follow the law is what got us there in the first place. So our solution turns out to be what got us into our predicament. We are sinful and we cannot follow the law. Paul in verse 24 explains this more by calling the law our guardian. Some translations use the word tutor or trainer or teacher here. This was a reference to the pedagogue of that day, a slave who was employed by a father to take his children to school and bring them home again. And the pedagogue might whip the boy if he didn't learn his lessons well. And the law likewise whipped us to Christ and taught us that we could not be saved of our own efforts. The law highlighted our transgressions and foretold the coming of Christ. The law shows us that we are utterly sinful because we cannot abide by its demands. But at the same time, the law shows us that we are in dire need of someone to save us. Paul comes back to this in Galatians 4, 1 through 3. He again compares us to a child guarded by a pedagogue. See that in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul again says we are under guardians and trustees. In Galatians 4, 1, Paul says that like the children of that day, we, if we're apart from Christ, differ in no way from a slave. If we study the background of this passage, we come to find that children in that day were kind of like slaves themselves, waiting for the promises of advancement in adulthood. And as good as the law is, without Christ stepping in, we would be no more than a child or a slave in first century eyes. And Paul brings these two truths together very clearly in Galatians 4.3, where he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. 
There is an ongoing illustration here that's been brought to a close in the same way that children and slaves are bound by their social statuses. So were we apart from Christ. Again, we were completely enslaved. Why then is this such a glorious reality? It might be a reality, but maybe to you it doesn't seem all that glorious. Well, here's the good news. Paul says it in Galatians 3, 24. The law then was our guardian until Christ. How rich are these two words, until Christ. The reality of our enslavement is glorious because it points us to our need for faith in Christ. And believe me, we need to be pointed to our need for faith in Christ. Every single day, we need to be reminded of our need for faith in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.25 that since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And was the guardian bad? Was the law wrong to show us our need? Absolutely not. It's as Paul says in Romans 7, 7 and 12. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. We are thankful for the guardian that is the law because it revealed to us that we were sinful, that we needed to be justified, made right before a holy God. So thankfully, Galatians 3 and 4 are not just about our slavery. Paul moves from here to talk about our justification, which brings us to our second glorious reality. Through Christ, we are freely justified. Through Christ, we are freely justified. The law was our guardian, but what was that leading us to? What was that preparing us for? Well, Paul says in Galatians 3, 24, so that we could be justified by faith. Paul moves here to the theme of this entire letter to say that Christians are justified by faith. The pedagogues of that day were with the children for some time, but eventually the children would move on into adulthood, and the pedagogue would not be useful to them anymore. And likewise, the law was with us, and eventually we were handed over to Christ. Why? So that we could be justified by faith. Because justification was not possible under the law. And so we graduated from the law's control and guardianship, so to speak. But it's not because of anything we did. We have no merit, and instead we moved on from the law because Christ fulfilled the law, as he said he would do in Matthew 5, 17. The law cannot save you. It couldn't do it pre-Christ, and it definitely cannot do it post-Christ. We need Christ to be saved. We need Christ in order to be right before God. We need Christ in order to be justified. And how in the world does this happen? What changes our status before a holy God? Well, for those who are made to be in union with Christ, we get Christ's merit. He took our sin in what is the most scandalous transaction that has ever taken place. Paul speaks of this transaction in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he writes, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It'd be like you taking $500 of Monopoly money to the bank and getting $500 million in exchange. Paul comes back to this theme in Galatians 4, 4, and 5 when he writes 
that when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent his son purposefully and sovereignly at the right moment in the history of mankind. God's oversight of the events of the world thus far had directed us to this moment. The peoples and the nations were ready for the incarnation and ministry of Jesus. It was time for the gospel. When Jesus came to be crucified and resurrected, it was, as Peter said in Acts 2.23, according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And why did God do all of this in his timing It was for the sake of our justification. The fact that God sent his son reminds us of that great evangelistic verse, John 3, 16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was divinely sent, and as well, he was born in the likeness of man, or as Paul says, born of a woman. And this phrase points us to both the miraculous and divine nature of Christ's birth in that he was born of a virgin, but it also points us to Jesus' human nature, as does Paul saying that Jesus was born under the law. And Jesus, when he came under the law, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he was born as a man under the law. What Adam could not do and what we cannot do, Jesus did. As Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet, the writer of Hebrews goes on, he was without sin. Christ did much more than we could ever imagine to do. He did not abolish the law or break the law. Jesus fulfilled the law, never messing up even one single time. And it was essential that he be born under the law, that he know the experiences of being a man. It was, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 5, so that Christ could redeem those under the law. And what does this look like? How do we explain this justification, this redemption? Well, let's go back to Paul's words in Galatians 3, 27. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes to life here. God makes the one who didn't know sin to be sin for us. So not only that we might become Christ's righteousness, but that we ourselves might be clothed with Christ himself. This language of putting on or being clothed with Christ suggests taking on a new life and purpose through being united to Christ in baptism, something we will celebrate this evening. The child moves from being guarded by a pedagogue to being given garments that signify adulthood and maturity. I still remember the day I had to move from wearing my 18 Huskies to 3230s. I was no longer a boy. I was now a young man, in the words of my mother. In Christ, a similar but more profound change happens. We go from being imprisoned to being freed. We go from being condemned to being justified When we get married, we put on tuxes and dresses. When we graduate, we put on robes and fancy hats. When we're commissioned, we put on uniforms. And when we have children, we put on hospital gowns. And when we are justified, we put on Christ. This is what God sees now when he looks at those who have placed their faith in Christ. He doesn't see their sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees us just as if we had never sinned, but also just as if we had lived rightly all along. But church, 
We cannot stop here when it comes to our theology, when it comes to our doctrine. I have found that many of us, myself included, are satisfied enough to stop at the doctrine of our justification that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. After all, this is the basis of our Protestant heritage as Baptists. We exist today due to Martin Luther taking up the cause of justification by faith more than 500 years ago. But we cannot stop here. We must not stop here in our understanding of God's salvation of us. And so our third glorious reality is likely the most important for this morning. In Christ, we are lovingly adopted. In Christ, we are lovingly adopted. Galatians 3.26 shows that in Christ and because of our faith, we are not only justified before God, but we are adopted. Paul says, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. We go from being enslaved to free, yes. We go from being condemned to justified, yes. But we also go from being alienated to adopted. We go from being strangers to adopted. We go from being orphans to adopted. And I'm not meaning to teach you this morning that we can somehow overemphasize the doctrine of justification. We all need to be grounded in this doctrine. It is essential for Christians to believe in this doctrine. But justification is not the end of it all. Listen to what J.I. Packer says on this in his magnificent book, Knowing God. He says that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification And this may cause raising of eyebrows, for many believe free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Well, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. So Packer says, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. In the doctrine of justification, we're made right before God, our judge. And in the doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God, our Father. As David Platt says, in justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement. But in adoption, the judge not only declares you not guilty, he gets up off the bench, comes down to where you are, takes your chains off of you, and he says, come home with me as my son. We graduate or move on from the law, the law that was our tutor, a tutor that showed us that we could never measure up, and we move from having this tutor to having a loving father. A primary issue in the churches in Galatia was that some were teaching that new Gentile believers had to adhere to the strict rule of the law in order to truly live right before God. In particular, they were saying that you had to practice circumcision as the Jews did, for this is what the law demanded. But Paul speaks against this when he hits on our adoption. He says in Galatians 3.28 that we are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, a family is made, and in this family... He says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. The theme of unity is strong here. Lest we think that justification or adoption is solely about me, me, me. It is not. There is a corporate aspect as well. If I'm adopted as a son, and you're adopted as a son, and he's adopted as a son, and she's adopted as a son, then what are we becoming? We are becoming a family. We are adopted into the family of God to make up the household of faith a phrase Paul uses in Galatians 6.10. And what's amazing is that there is no partiality as it pertains who can be in this family. 
Jew or Greek shows that your ethnicity does not matter. Slave or free shows that your social status does not matter. Male and female shows that your gender does not matter and eliminates any notion that Paul is being chauvinistic by saying that we are all sons of God. At the foot of the cross, we are equals, and God will just as much save an American man as he will save an Iranian woman. Christ clothes them all. God adopts them all. Fathers and sons can become brothers. Mothers and daughters can become our sisters. This family that is created as people place their faith in Christ points us directly to the vision John has in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, where he sees a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and people, and they are worshiping God in his throne room for all eternity. And yes, they are individuals. That's amazing in and of itself that God has saved so many. But what's even crazier is that all of these seemingly different people from across the span of world history are joined together to make one people of God, one adopted family. And so Paul says of those who belong to this family in Galatians 3.29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we find that not only... Are we clothed with Christ, baptized into Christ, or one in Christ, freed by Christ, justified by Christ? Now, Paul tells us we belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's seed. Think about this, that God's promise to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations takes place through Christ, who through his death and resurrection was able to bring us into the family of God. So what's happening in our justification is amazing, but the adoption that comes after our justification goes beyond this as it takes a thousands-year-old promise and fulfills it. And then Paul finishes off our text with one of the most grand sections in all of Scripture. It's reminiscent of Romans 8, 1 through 17, which we heard earlier. Why did God send his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem those who were imprisoned under the law? Well, according to Galatians 4, 5, it was so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here we find out why God sent his son. It was to redeem the enslaved. For what sake did God send his son? Surely we have to say it was for his praise and glory. That is what God is all about, the magnification of his name, the praise of his name. But how does the praise of his name take place in redemption? It's when the peoples of the earth are adopted into his family to give him praise. Paul actually connects Jesus' coming with the aim of our adoption. My wife, Cassandra, and I haven't adopted a child yet, but we plan to do so. And so we have spent much time researching adoption and learning from others who have done adoption. And one thing I'm certain of, especially with international adoption, is that much time has to be given in travel to the place your potential adopted child is at. Weeks and months can be spent in countries you might never otherwise find yourself in. And why in the world are people willing to do this? It's so they can adopt children who need to be adopted. So so think about this. That as hard as this is, Paul shows us that Jesus Christ humbled himself, came to earth in the likeness of man, was born a babe, raised as a child, lived to his early 30s, came from the rinky-dink town of Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, traversed the land, healing people and doing many miracles, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom, oftentimes to much rejection, chose 12 men as his disciples just to see most of them deny him when he needed them most. He was killed, punished for our transgressions, humiliated on a cross, embarrassed before his own people, and ridiculed by sinful men. And for what purpose did Christ leave his throne to come to earth? So that we would be redeemed, yes. But Paul says here, it was so we, his people, might receive adoption as sons. It was so we could call God Father as Jesus does. What love the Father has shown us in sending us his Son. What love the Son has shown us in giving his life for us. And what love the Spirit has shown us as he indwells us and leads us to the profession of Galatians 4.6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now Paul gives us one of the implications of our adoption. The adopted sons of God receive the Spirit. God sends the Spirit into our hearts, and something happens as a result. The Spirit certainly does much for us. He makes us witnesses, according to Acts 1.8. He gives us assurance, according to Ephesians 1. Later, Paul says that it's the Spirit who causes us to bear fruit, Galatians 5. The Spirit helps us to confess that Christ is Lord, resulting in our salvation, 1 Corinthians 12. And now... Paul says that the Spirit causes us to confess, to say, to cry out, Abba, Father. This is a deeply personal cry to our Father. You may have heard it said that a good translation of this word is Daddy. While this doesn't make the most linguistic sense, it does help us understand the personal, intimate nature of the word. I've worked with other Christians before who choose to call God Daddy. If I'm honest, it seems weird, strange, and I think it kind of lacks reverence to God's name. I have to admit that during a corporate prayer, you will never hear me start a prayer with Daddy. But maybe my first impression of this shows just how radical of an idea it is that we call a holy, reverent, perfect God something so deeply personal. If you have kids, you know what it's like for them to call you father or to call you dad. But, and I don't know why, there is just something that melts my heart when I think of a little girl or a little boy calling out for their daddy. I don't know what it's like to have a child call me daddy, but I can tell you that when Gemma does one day, she'll all but have me wrapped around her finger. That will be my daughter, and you can believe that when she calls for daddy, I'm going to listen. Why? Because she's my child. And as much as we can cry out to God as our father, as amazing as that is, Paul tells us here that we can cry out to our Abba, in a deeply personal, childlike, natural way. The creator of the universe invites you to call him Abba, Father. And so the conclusion, Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And if God has made you an heir, the law can do nothing more for you. If God has done all this for us through Christ, freed us, justified us, made us right, made us holy, adopted us, then there is not a single thing we should look to add to the finished work of Christ. Because of the gospel of Christ, we go from being enslaved to free, condemned to justify, alienated to adopted. God doesn't just satisfy the law's demand. God doesn't just make us justified through Christ. God makes us sons and daughters. So what does this mean, church? What is so great about our justification? What's so great about our adoption? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
We are no longer slaves. We are in Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We are one in Christ. We are Abraham's promised seed. We are thus heirs of God. We are fully redeemed. We are Holy Spirit filled. And we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. So how do we live in light of this? Well, I can think of many ways, but I'll just briefly mention four. First, we see God as the father of our family. While being reverent, we have the honor of speaking to God as our father. Being his children, we aim to emulate and look like our father, to be holy as he is holy. The gospel serves as our motivation to obey our Father. We don't earn his love. Rather, because he loves us, we seek to live as our Father has called us to live. Second, we live as family. Liberty Baptist Church should feel like a home. We can be honest and vulnerable with one another. We can relax around one another. We can be ourselves. Let your hair down. You don't have to have it all together. Joke with one another. Be real with one another. We can live in honesty. We should long to see each other. We should go out of our way to spend time with one another. We should fight for unity. It's okay and right to miss Nathan when he's gone from this pulpit because he's our pastor and a member of this family. And it's okay to let him know you miss him. It's okay to hug and greet one another every Sunday. We should see our fellow members and all Christians as brothers and sisters. We are a family. Let's live like it. Third, we grow our family. The more, the merrier should be our theme. We must share the gospel with those who are near us, and we must take the gospel to the nations, the same nations Paul sought to reach. God has children in every people group on this earth, and he's called us to go to them with the gospel message that if believed, can make them sons and daughters of the Most High God. And maybe for some of you today, you need to do this by believing in the gospel yourselves. Maybe the application today for you is to repent and to believe the gospel that's been preached this morning. I would implore you to place your faith in Christ and join this family. And fourth, we adopt into our families. I would be lying if I didn't say that I really hope we catch this vision here at Liberty Baptist. Cassandra and I recently started the process of adoption right before she got pregnant. And some thought that since she was now pregnant that we wouldn't be adopting anymore. But that is not the case, and here's why. We were not adopting just because having biological children wasn't working out. We were adopting and will still adopt because we're motivated by God's adoption of us. We were spiritual orphans. We were prisoners when God made us his children. So I believe we should consider adopting literal orphans as a picture of this gospel truth. Whether it's domestic or international adoption, whether we foster to adopt, whether we do foster care or orphan ministry of some sort, I believe we should live out this truth in our own lives and consider if God might lead us toward adoption. And if you need guidance, please let me know. I'd love to walk with you through that as we walk through it as well. And I feel like I'd be doing something wrong if I didn't quote Charles Spurgeon from this pulpit. So let's end with Spurgeon's words on our text. 
If you are born unto God, you are born unto God. The stars may turn to coals, and the sun and moon may become clots of blood, but he who is born of God has a life within him that can never end. He is God's child, and God's child he shall forever be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the glorious truth of the fact that we were enslaved, but you chose to justify us and also to adopt us. Father, we thank you that you have made a family by calling us to yourself. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see you as our father, to live as a family, to grow as a family, and to maybe even consider adopting into our own families. Father, let this all be motivated by the gospel. Let's not do this because of the law or because we want to be legalistic. Let's do this because we are motivated by your gospel and your gospel alone. So help us, Father, each and every day to be reminded of how, how in need we are of faith in Christ, how in need we are of the gospel. And Father, I pray that if there are unbelievers in this room this morning, that you would call them to yourself right now as only you can, that you would make the gospel so clear, that you would convict them so much of sin that they could not help but repent of that sin and place their faith in you. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.